This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. And this is Vincent Cunningham, one of our theater critics, on stage at the New Yorker Festival with the playwright Susan Laurie Parks. It, it feels very stilted to read an introduction for you because I always tell people the first Broadway show I saw was Cats as a middle schooler. <laughs> and the second one was Top Dog Underdog. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it's one of the reasons I studied literature, um, cared about the theater. You, like, sort of are the reason I'm even here talking to you. So I just am so happy to be here with you. As Vincent said, Parks' influence has been enormous over the years. She's still probably best known, though, for Top Dog Underdog, a two-man show about a pair of brothers named Lincoln and Booth. They're struggling with poverty, with the weight of American history, and their own bitter rivalry. Top Dog Underdog opened on Broadway in 2002, and 20 years later, it's just been revived in a production with Corey Hawkins and Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. Here's Vincent Cunningham talking with Susan Laurie Parks. Um, Susan Laurie Parks is the first African-American woman to receive the Pulitzer Prize in drama. Um, Other of her awards include the MacArthur Genius Grant, uh, the Dorothy and Lillian Gish Prize. Her theater credits include Top Dog Underdog, The Book of Grace, Unchain My Heart, the Ray Charles musical, and the upcoming Plays for the Plague Year, which we'll talk about. Um, She wrote the screenplays for The United States vs. Billie Holiday and Girl 6, wrote the novel Getting Mother's Body, which I... uh, I'm sorry, I will pay back one day. I read the whole thing in a Barnes & Noble when I was in college. Uh, but, so I, I'll Venmo you for that um, experience. Uh, <laughs> uh, and she was the creator, head writer, and executive producer for the series Genius. Uh, additionally, uh, Susan Laurie Parks fronts the band Sula and the Noise. Thank you so much for being with us. It's Happy such an honor. Happy to be here. Thank you. Um, we should start with Top Dog Underdog because it's being revived on Broadway. You kind of shocked the theater world and the rest of the world when it came out. It was such a, it felt like an avalanche. Now you, of course, are working um, with a different pair of wonderful performers. How do you even think about it living in, some, in, in other bodies? Well, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, as a playwright or as a writer of dramatic literature, you know, that's something that we grow accustomed to, you know. Um, I write my specifically plays. I mean, films are, you know, that's just for the one actor and they do the performance. Um, But with plays, you have to write it so that it endures. 
You know what I'm saying? It has to be passed around from hand to hand, from community to community, from, from continent to continent, uh, through the ages, long, hopefully after you pass away and the script will endure and be something that artists can come to and embody. And it's built like that. It's built with that in mind. If it's written well. <laughs> um, so I believe the Top Dog is written very well and it has been done by many, many, many people. Um, and not only men of African descent, all kinds of different folks have felt like, hey, I, I have a, a, a place in here. Might I do it also? And I'm like, sure, it's your production. Go for it. You know what I mean? And so I just sit back and, and Kenny Leon is such a, a brilliant director. And I just sit back and go, yeah, that looks good. Like that, it's very. No, I'm, though I did change the one thing they were talking about. You give someone your number, uh, and you you tell them that you have a home. Because in 1999, when I wrote it, landlines were the thing, right? And now, you I've changed it. It's the same rhythm. So you give someone your number, telling them one thing that you have a home. You give someone your number, telling them one thing that you have a phone. Hello. Right, so it, it's the same rhythm, different words, because now giving someone your phone number tells them that you have a phone, not necessarily a home. So little changes like that, but it wasn't specific to the guys. You know, right. It was just the world that we live in now. Wow. Um, do you think metrically like that when you write? Totally, this? totally. So they say, I mean, scripture says, and I, I am a fan of scripture, in the beginning was the word, mm-hmm. right? But that might just be the word's point of view. I mean, all respect intended. But that might just be the word's point of view. Because I had a notion last night. In the beginning was the groove. And that, I was like, yeah. Because the groove, I think, comes before the word. See, so this is me up late at night thinking. You know, or, or feeling thing and, and surmising, yeah. perhaps. Because I do write to the groove. I write to the groove. Just to the groove. And I can tap it out. It's all, it's all uh, l- lyrics to me. Mm-hmm. I've heard you say that your dad, when you were young, you moved around a lot. Yeah, he, was in the ser- he was in the army. He was in the service, yeah. Um, I've heard you say that he bought, when you were a kid, a, a baby grand piano that you, you took around with you. Yes. So would you say, I mean, in the same way that, like, you know, cosmically, yes. first comes the groove. Did, did the groove came first for you autobiographically, right? I mean, it was that... Before right. you were interested in writing, and you were interested in music. Oh yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. I was. I was definitely started out as a, I mean, musician, uh, someone who loved music, someone who played music very, not so great on the piano. So my mom loved jazz. Uh, they both loved soul music. My dad loved opera, uh, and he's you know six foot four, darker shade of soul brother. You know, he would walk around the house lip syncing to Puccini and Wagner. And we would just sit there. You're like, what is this? Dad, you know, and then by day he would put on a uniform and he'd go and be in the army. <laughs> and then in the <laughs> evening he'd come home and turn on the Puccini and walk around the house. <laughs> that, was, that was dad. And he'd be like, yeah, okay. The drama was right there in the living room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
during the first year of the pandemic, mm. you wrote a play every day. Yes. And now, of course, this your plays for the plague year are, is going to be produced at the at the public. I I heard from you that you had your first rehearsal today. We did. And you're oh, and I should say that you are performing, acting, singing in it, this performance. Yes, I am. How? Can you please just what was the I know, what's going on? Huh? Yes. No. What was the impulse behind doing know, the, this right. everyday thing? Right. Well, you know, no. I mean, we were all, you know, March 13th. What was it? March 13th, 2020, 20, whatever 2020, it was. Yeah. Right. And we all were like minding our own business or at work or whatever. And they were like, we're shutting everything down. We're like, nah. and I said, I need to do something to prepare for the moment where we can, when we all get back together. And I said, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to write a play. I could just sit at home at our dining room table where I write. And while remote schooling, third grader in the one bedroom apartment, which was at the dining room table also. Um, husband there too. We were living there. Like all of us closed off from each other. I just started writing a play a day. And I gave, I showed it to the folks at the public theater where I am one of the writers in residence. And Oscar used to said, this is great. Let's, let's produce it. I said, okay. And then uh, he said, well, you have to be in it. And I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'd written one of the recurring characters in these little plays is called The Writer. So I'd written myself into the plays without thinking that I was going to actually do it. I thought I was going to you know, pass it on to a wonderful actor. Yeah. Um, Maybe this is like a very rote question, but what's it like to memorize on the level of performance your own lines? It's, it's, it's a little strange. <laughs> because the, I, I thought for a while, like I'm, I told the actors, I'm not acting. Like I said to them, you're acting. I'm just being myself. And then I realized, well, I'm actually not even doing that. I'm pretending to be myself. So I'm, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure what it all means, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that every time I read your bio somewhere, you always say um, her teacher was James Baldwin. You know, um, that sense of literary ancestry right. is so. Right. Alive in you. I love that you always, um, that's always a part of mm -hmm. the package that we get with you. How, I mean, as an 18 year old, 19 year old? Yeah, nah, 19, 20, 80. Yeah, I'm, I'm old. So yeah, <laughs> it was uh, when I was tw 19, 20. Yeah, at, he taught at Hampshire College. I went to Mount Holyoke College, and you could take a class in the five college area, five college consortium. And I was one of the lucky ones, the 15 in the class around a library table. He said it was the first creative writing class that he had taught, which is kind of amazing. Um, and there we were sitting there, and I was very dorky and shy and um, very animated. when it, I was writing short stories then, very animated when I would read them aloud like this, and then, and then, you know, and the characters, you know, I'd do all that. And he was just, you know, he was just like watching me like this. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, well, so, and he suggested that I write for the theater because I was so animated. I had no desire to write for the theater at all because theater people were, all, you know, <laughs> la di darling, darling. They all talk like that. Um, and here I am. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. Do you notice any 
differences in how people start out in their sort of aspirations to be writers now that you're, you know, with students so often. One thing that I think about, you didn't go to grad school to, no. to, to write, for example. And now so many of the playwrights that we know, like institutions play a bigger part in creating artists these days uh, or nurturing or launching or whatever verb you want to use. <laughs> Does, has that changed the structure of things or some of what we think of art? And I think I think so. And again, the, the, the footnote to this is I teach at NYU, you know. So I have a, a oh, yay, my you, yeah, yeah, go violets. <laughs> and it's expensive. <laughs> and, you know, right, yeah, it's, it's, it's high. That, that bill is, is high. And I think that creates a lot of, in my students, I mean, not in y'all, but in my students, I think it creates a lot of unnecessary anxiety. When I graduate, I have to make, I have to pay this bill. But also the competitive nature of the institution creates a kind of anxiety that, that I think creates an artist, specifically a writer, who is, as they say in the wall of the new school as you pass by, desperate to make their mark on the world. Mm. I was never desperate to make my... I just wanted to do the best work I could. So I think there's an anxiety that's, that's happening because of the way these institutions are training artists. Mm. And which is why I, I stayed in my because I'm like, well, if the, the majority of the training is like this, then at least I can offer my, you know, outlook and my sort of um, say on, well, you know, throw my words into the pot, you know, with the others. Yeah. In the Times the other day, you mentioned feeling a certain compulsion in our culture to perform a certain kind of like, whether it's black joy or some other feeling as a black writer that you're expected to kind of broadcast. I just wonder what, if you could talk more about that. What, what does that compulsion feel like and how have you dealt with it, circumvented it, ignored it, whatever? We do expect certain things of, of certain people. And I feel like uh, as a, a black woman, person, writer, human, uh, certain things are expected of me and certain things are like looked at. Mm, why are you doing that? Um, I have to, you know, I follow the spirit. Mm -hmm. So uh, the thing about black joy, which I think is important, I think I love to see black people joyful on stage, on screen, everywhere. And we need to be clear about, uh, in my opinion, where the joy really is. We, we're, we're, the marketplace is telling us that black joy is what sells. I'm very suspicious about what the marketplace wants me to create. Because I know, in my experience, where real black joy resides. And sometimes that's in the place where there might be some traumatic thing that also happened. But two things, and why I, f I feel this. So there are two things that make me really believe this. Um, that we ought to take another look at uh, this sort of rejection of trauma-based stories. That's very fashionable now. No more trauma-based stories. I heard uh, professors at uh, certain universities have to agree that their acting students won't be in any demeaning roles, which includes any roles when they're slaves. I'm like, oh, gee, that's a lot of my plays. Okay, interesting. Um, um, and if either, I'm just going to drop one more thing, WWJD, what would Jesus do? You know, and whether you believe in Jesus or not, it doesn't matter. That was a person who went into the stinky places. 
Now, if you want to follow someone great who did cool things, a lot of those, that kind of person did some cool shit because they weren't afraid to go into places where there was pain and suffering. So, again, I love a good, black, joyous story. Mm-hmm. And I think Top Dog is one. Yeah. Um, but I'm not afraid of, of the, the painful places, too. Yeah. You know? On the one hand, Top Dog is about the love, as you say, but there, you know, there is tragedy involved. Like, what is the, what's the use of tragedy as a? That's such a great. I mean, I'm smiling because I, I'm writing about that right now in one of an essay that I'm writing. Yeah, because we don't think tragedy has a use anymore. You know, no, it's only good stuff. It's only happy stories, happy endings. If you, you know, write anything that approaches, you know, something that might make somebody uncomfortable. And I don't mean the titillating uncomfortable. Like, Ooh, <laughs> I'm not talking about that. That's some bullshit, basically. I mean, let's be real, okay? I'm talking about the stuff that makes you reevaluate the way you are, the way you treat your neighbor. Oh, my goodness. I have to rethink some things on a deep level. Not, it made me a little squirmy. No, I'm not talking about that. So I, I do think that there's a great use of tragedy that we've forgotten about. And in the old, and again, I didn't go to grad school, so I'm just reading plays and coming up with some ideas out of the side of my neck. But in the old school, you know, like Greek tragedy, like, like, like Oedipus. Oedipus, you know, you guys know Oedipus, right? So that play, or if you don't know, just imagine, you know, it's an old play. Everybody in the theater going to see Oedipus would have known the ending already. Amazing, right? So it wasn't like spoiler alerts weren't a thing back then. Everybody knew, oh, Oedipus, he's really related to that lady that he married. That's really his mother. So they're sitting back going, yeah, this is going to be really interesting. <laughs> they come to the theater knowing the story. And yet, the story is so all-enveloping that it's so moving and it creates things like catharsis. It, it kind of shocks them. It wakes them up. It moves them to reconsider basic aspects of their life. That's cool shit. You know what I mean? Now, just eating like sugar, entertainment, while it's really nice, ain't going to do that. Entertainment is going to anesthetize you and make you buy shit that you don't need. So we, we, I'm encouraging us to, as human beings, we have the equipment to do incredible things. So what are we waiting for? You know, right? What are we waiting for? Susan Laurie Parks. Her Pulitzer Prize winning play, Top Dog Underdog, has just been revived on Broadway. And she spoke with Vincent Cunningham as part of the New Yorker Festival this month. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour with more to come. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. 
At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. On Radio Lab, first we thought we'd made some sort of mistake. Two surprisingly simple scientific discoveries. This is crazy. <laughs> I mean, we were just so surprised. That makes us reconsider our assumptions about progress. We need to learn the language of the doctors of that time. We need to be a little bit less dismissive. Staff retreat from Radio Lab. I learned a bit of humility this way. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Martin McDonough was a playwright in his 20s when he burst onto the theater scene in London. At one point, he had four plays running simultaneously on stages across London. But McDonough also aspired to work in movies, and he eventually made In Bruges, a real favorite of mine, and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. McDonough's newest is called The Banshees of Inisherin. Although most of McDonough's plays were set in Ireland, This is his first feature film about the country. It traces the story of a friendship breaking apart, and it's set in the beautiful remote hills of a fictional island west of Ireland. The movie stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Now I'm sitting here next to you, and if you're going back inside, I'm following you inside, and if you're going home, I'm following you there too. Now, if I've done something to you, Just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. With all my heart, I'll say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody schoolchild. But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. You do like me. I don't. You liked me yesterday. Oh, did I? Yeah. I thought you did. Staff writer Patrick Radden Keefe interviewed McDonough at the New Yorker Festival. So, um, so congratulations on the film. It's it's kind of a, a breakup movie. So that's that's all it is for me. I mean, that was definitely the starting point of it, um, to be as uh, truthful to the sadness, I suppose, of a of a horrible breakup, um, where you can kind of understand both sides in it. I think that was the balance that I think you're naturally on Colin Farrell's side, definitely to begin with, and even in the script writing stage. But um, the trick, not the trick, but the uh, the thing to get right was to see of, as much of the story from uh, from Brendan Gleeson's point of view too. Did you? So, and was that what it was from the original conception then? Uh, yeah, there was there was an earlier version of it just a few years before where it, it didn't quite. It went to a plotty kind of um, stupid, shitty place. Um, and uh, um, no, really. And uh, but I just wanted this to be sort of plotless in, in a way, just to have the unraveling of this breakup uh, be what the whole story was about. 
did you write the, having worked with these two actors before in In Bruges, um, I mean, a very, very different movie, and yet one in which their dynamic is everything in the way that it is here. Did you write this one with them in mind? Oh, yeah, very much so. We've sort of been wanting to get together in the 14, 14 years since uh, we made that. It hasn't quite happened. Obviously, I worked with uh, Colin again for uh, Seven Psychopaths, but um, I'd stayed friends with both of them. Um, we always see each other if we're in each other's countries, and they've remained great friends. So we always uh, hoped that something like this would come about. Um, I've been very lazy about it. and I'm, <laughs> you know, take you got around to, to it. When you got around to it, you got around to it? Yeah. The fear was, because you know, we all loved In Bruges, and we love how much people love In Bruges, um, but when you're getting the team back together you don't want to fuck up that uh that love you know you don't want to do something that's lesser you know you can do something i hope we've done something that's stranger but definitely something that isn't um uh not as good yeah and there's also i mean there's an aspect it seemed to me there's a kind of fable quality to the story and i want to talk about ireland so i mean because you're you're a Londoner, but grew up with Irish parents and spent time in Ireland during the summers when you're growing up. Yeah, and your parents live there now, right? Yeah. Not far from where the film was made. And, yeah. and so much of your work has taken place in Ireland, and yet in the plays, I think there's sometimes also this like slightly fable kind of fairy tale quality. And I guess I just wondered is the is the place where these stories take is is it a real place? Or is it a kind of Ireland of the mind? I wonder about your, your relationship to... It's, I, I think it's a sort of theatrical Irish place. You know, this island doesn't actually exist, but obviously the Civil War was a real thing and did... Um, uh, it, it is a very interesting part of the backdrop, so that takes away a little bit from the fable quality. But I think if you set anything 100 years ago and lean into mysticism and banshees and folklore and all that stuff, it's going to have... Um, some semblance of that kind of thing. And do you ever feel? I mean, I I hope you'll take this question in, in the right way because I, you know I'm an, I'm an, I'm a New Yorker who wrote a book about Ireland myself. But do, do you ever feel? Do you ever feel like there's a trespass or there's a license that you're taking? Is that something you're totally untroubled by, or is it something that that you're kind of mindful of at all? I mean, untroubled by it until the Irish rev- reviews come in. <laughs> Then things get troubling. Um, but um, but no, I mean, it's like more than just summer holidays as a kid. It's like we, we grew up in London. All of the families around us were Irish. And um, so you'd hear Irish music blaring from each sides of, of, of our little uh, area where we grew up. Uh, Mum and Dad were very proud to be Irish and, you know, encourage it in us almost too much um and but we'd go for christmases our pet grandparents were still alive in sligo at that time so as a child it felt like we were half the year there and half the year in london obviously my accent is very london but uh london irish is probably a, a good way to describe me i've i don't have a, a british passport um which is probably a good move these days um i've only had an irish one but I've always, also always sort of been anti-nationalist um, and uh, anti-patriotic and all those things. So the whole Irish-English thing, I kind of find a bit boring these days. Yeah. Um, the, uh, that makes one of us. <laughs> um, the, um, I, I read somewhere that, the, um, that you first 
that it was kind of a breakthrough for you as a writer when, with plays initially that you kind of, that you thought about the way in which your your father and I think your uncle maybe spoke that there was a sort of idiom that you you stumbled upon and in the way that you know I mean I would imagine in the way that for Mamet or Pinter they they kind of discovered a register and an idiom that that unlocked something exactly in fact Pinter and Mamet were sort of the two big influences and sort of too much of an influence in fact because all of the stuff I was attempting to write then was sort of English or American-based and very much sort of rip-offs of, you know, the birthday party or um, American Buffalo to a degree. And it was only once I... But I knew I wanted to to have dialogue be more theatrical than, than, than it is in real life. And I thought those were the best two people around uh, who were doing that. Um, but it was when I tried to do that in, in a West of Ireland context that things did uh, open up and allowed the... The dialogue and the characters even to be a bit more poetic and heightened than the everyday uh, London kind of stuff that I was trying to do. I I wanted to ask you because you've had this fascinating career where you started with plays um, and then moved into film and and have continued to do both. But I went back and I started reading these interviews that you did early in your career. 25 years ago, mm-hmm. you suddenly burst onto the scene, this young guy in his 20s, you'd written seven plays in less than a year and just came out of nowhere. Um, and there were these amazing interviews where you would talk to people who were clearly filled with a kind of wonder and envy. And they would say, like, you know, you're the first person since Shakespeare to have four shows simultaneously in London. Like, how do you do it? And your reaction was always, eh, theater's fine. What I really want to do is get into movies. <laughs> um, and you could feel they were so kind of crestfallen. The, um, I, I feel terrible because I know Fenton O'Toole, um, but I have to quote you this. This is you and Fenton O'Toole in 1998 for Bomb magazine. You said, I would be unhappy if I wrote 90 good plays and didn't make a good film. But if I made one good film, if I made one brilliant film, one really, really good film, I'd be happy. One would be enough, and um, and then you say, like, clearly you're what kind an of, arrogant little dick. You're I sort of, no, but what I love is that it's Fenton who's there, and he's like he's celebrating your your you know budding career as a playwright. Clearly, there was something going on in his face because you then say you really love theater, maybe to him, and and Fenton says. I do. <laughs> um, oh, sweet Fintan. So here's what I... Here's and his what, love of theater. Here's exactly right. So here's what I wondered. Is, um, I wonder a couple of things. I mean, one is uh, when you sit down to write something, how do you know if it's a movie or a play? Uh, if it's got four characters and it's set inside, it's a play. <laughs> and it, if it doesn't have any donkeys or dogs... Cats, it could go Cats either way. Cats, you can manage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, um, and you, you said to The Guardian recently that you may want to devote the remainder of your career chiefly to films. Well, it's something, uh, weirdly, it kind of, it's, I don't know if it's just because um, Brendan Gleeson's character is on my mind, but definitely during COVID, <clears throat> um, one does, you know, think of time passing and how much time you've got left. And I've sort of discovered as years gone by that it takes as much time or longer to do a play to get it on, you know, off West End in London to West End to off Broadway to, to here. That'll be like four, four years or so, whereas, you know, we made this last year and it's out now. Um, so to take care of a play from start to finish does, you know, take take... Uh, a similar amount of time 
I do feel like, you know, the plays that we got good like 25 years ago, you can't see them. They're all gone, you know, forever. And there's a sadness to that, I feel. And, and, and as, as the years go on, I always, <clears throat> as much as I used to slag plays off, I did do love them um, if they're done my way. Um, no, if they're done in a certain way, you know, Pinter's way or early Mammoth's way or, or whatever. But... Um, I, now I, I'm I, I'm not going to swear off plays because if I get a good play idea, I'll, I'll jump into it. But if I'm th- seriously thinking about if you you know you've got 20 years, 30 years left, uh, you know a film every couple of years is going to last more than a play will. How do you decide on the setting of your movies, and how do you do the research? Um, uh, well, for the, for this one certainly, I. I my my parents live just across the bay from the Aran Islands, so uh, and that whole area of the West, Connemara, up through Sligo and Mayo, is all and all the way down to Cork and Kerry. The whole West is. I sound like the Irish tourist board now too, but uh, it, it is the most beautiful part of the country, I think. Um, and I always wanted to set some, something there and and capture the beauty of it um, with uh, with three billboards. Also, it was to you know try and capture uh, uh, almost a, an old uh, American small town with like a street that's kind of both sides close together and you know a one horse sort of town. Um, so location is 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 always and obviously Bruges was um, uh, the, uh, Bruges was a character. I, I do like the locations to be characters in in the movies as much as possible. When you watched the film for the first time, did you find it sadder or more hopeful than you originally anticipated? Um, I think I was always trying to make it as sad as possible. Um, uh, once it's finished, it's, I don't think I've got enough distance to, to know where it lies right now. Maybe I'll ask people afterwards. Um, who actually show of hands, who, who would, is going to be sad or hopeful? Who think it's a sad film oh shit well mission accomplished any any hope out there oh wow okay so that's i guess it's a sad film um we're definitely not going to win the oscar (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much martin for coming thank you to all of you for coming to the new yorker festival good night the new yorker's patrick radden keith speaking with director and screenwriter Martin McDonough. And we'll be bringing you more conversations from the New Yorker Festival this fall, including my conversation with Bono, the lead singer of U2. I'm David Remnick. Thanks for listening today. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards, with additional music by Alexis Quadrado and Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Emily Botin, Brita Green, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Putubwele. Along with Jeffrey Masters, Will Coley, Jenny Lawton, and Michael May. And we had assistance from Harrison Keithline and James Napoli. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. 
Each week we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts.